final reading for this afternoon, Psalm 119 again, and this time from verse 105, the, the stanza that goes under the heading of None. Psalm 119, starting at verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you will work in all our hearts, that you will help us to value your word, your commands, your precepts, your decrees, and that you will preserve us to the very end. Amen. My title slide is um, a map, and I do apologise. Um, I spoke at the Miranda, uh, Miranda Anglican in Sydney, it's a suburb of Sydney, um, last week, and I had the, the brainwave that I should put a map of their suburb there so that they'd sit there going, mm, that's where I live. But I didn't, I forgot, and I didn't put a Northern Tasmania one. So I'm sorry about that. Um, there's a map of Miranda in case anyone is interested. Um, yes, we move on now to uh, the section Nun, and I'm afraid, again, I, a lapse on my part. I forgot to put the, the letter Nun or Nun in the, um, uh, in the slides, but you can see there, most, as I say, a lot of versions of the Bible have it. And uh, again, conveniently, it's the same as our uh, letter N, uh, and it has the same sound, and it's about in the same position in the alphabet, right after, right after M, and um, that works very well for us. And you may, of course, um, be very familiar with words or words like this from, especially if you were a Christian growing up in the 80s and uh, you listened to Amy Grant warble as she used to, um, that song, you may have sung it, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto our path. And there you go, once again, music has really helped us to remember the word of God, hasn't it, very well. Um, and so these are some of the more famous words for us from this, um, this particular passage, from this particular psalm. But I want to start by asking you where, you look for, where do you look for guidance in your life? What sets your direction? If we looked at preservation and security last time, now let's ask where do you get direction from? Where do you get your orientation from? When you go to those crossroads moments in life, when a choice between various options is required, well, what do you do? But I'm not just talking about those crossroads moments, those genuine moments of, you know, uh, which, which girl should I marry, which man should I marry, which etc., etc., or should I marry this one? Usually you don't have two in a row to choose. You just... That didn't go very well, did it? Um, but also, what do you do... Uh, how do you actually set your your general direction in life? How do you actually set out on the right track in life? 
Now it might be for you, I don't know, or it might be for people around you that it's a matter of following the latest trends that you really have to keep up with Joneses and that trend following a thing is the thing that you, uh, that you do. And uh, you know, that, that's how you set your, your face in the morning, in, in, in your life. But it might be uh, that comfortable habit and conformity are the things that guide you most. You know, that, that just being comfortable, uh, doing what's normal uh, in your view. It might be that you rely on a particular mentor or person that you trust. It might be that there's a person who you ring at those moments. Um, and uh, it might be a parent, it might be a, a trusted friend or, um, or anyone, it could be in your life, who you ring up, uh, who, who helps you. Uh, orient your life or perhaps it's that you trust in your own inner guidance system that you have a real belief in your gut and Australians love that don't you don't they they love to talk about well my gut feeling was telling me and my instincts are usually right they say they love that to trust their gut Uh, it could be an open question for you though it could be any of these or perhaps there's a vacancy in your life for a bit of guidance perhaps it's a bewildering question for you the question for us now is how reliable are these personal guidance systems Is our faith in these things well placed? Now I don't know if you have sat-nav in your car. I don't have it in my car yet. But it is a remarkable invention, isn't it? It kind of takes space-age technology and makes it ours, you know, makes it yours to own, that you can be in contact with a star circling around the Earth and can have your guide, you know, it will tell you where you're going on your, you know, on your journey to the shops or wherever it is. Um, now, personally, I'm still relying on uh, my wife for directions, um, but a sat-nav, I can see, has certain advantages. Um, doesn't get car sick, um, never says, you should have turned left back there, um, etc., so I can see why people are going for them. However, because it's a machine, and we love to trust machines, right? We think machines are infallible. Uh, people are ready to trust Satnev even, even against the evidence of their own eyes. And so um, only recently I read about a, a man called uh, Nekdet Bakimchi, who was a Turkish man, uh, a driver of lorries uh, throughout Europe, uh, transporting luxury cars, who ran into a spot of bother when he mistakenly followed his Satnav directions to Gibraltar Point, Lincolnshire, in the United Kingdom, rather than his intended destination of Gibraltar, Spain. You wonder why he didn't sort of realise that, you know, he's going across a boat. To, anyway, he, he's following the sat-nav. His miscalculation was only finally realised when he ground his lo- grounded his lorry on a humpback bridge in this remote rural village in England called Gibraltar Point. Or Paula, Paula Seeley of Redditch and Worcester, who followed her sat-nav's instructions to go over a level crossing. When she got out to close the gate, she heard the sound of a train's horn and noticed that she was standing on tracks. She had just time to get out of the way as the train slammed into her car and carried her on down the tracks. She said, I'll never use sat-nav again. Uh, Or Robert Jones, who I read about also, who was convicted of driving without due care when he drove his BMW onto a narrow cliffside path in Yorkshire with his sat-nav system telling him this was the way until his car hit a fence and became stuck close to a 30 metre drop. The police prosecutor said he followed his tom-tom sat-nav to the letter. So much so it led him up a lane clearly unsuitable for motor vehicles. Mr Jones slavishly continued to follow the sat-nav system to the point where his eyes and his brain must have been telling him otherwise to such a degree that he was not exercising proper control of the vehicle. 
right? I mean, that's an absurd trust that we have in the machine to tell us to be infallible, even when the evidence of our eyes is telling us otherwise. We have this great trust in that system. I think sometimes our other sat-nav systems, our other direction systems, we have absolute trust in them, even though things don't seem to be working out when we follow them. It sounds like it's pretty much going to do the driving for us, sat-nav. Our guides sound like they're going to make all the decisions for us, but just because it's a computer, just because it's a wise and trusted friend, just because it's the latest thing that everyone does, it is doing, doesn't mean it's a reliable guidance system. So it is. We want advice and direction, and it is nice to be able to get reliable directions, but we are, are we being reliably guided? Are we expecting too much of the guidance we're taking? Are we forgetting its fallibility? For our psalmist, it seems... Oh, there's a picture of a sat-nav in case... Isn't PowerPoint wonderful? Um, in case we didn't know. Anyway, here we go. Uh, how the word lights, us, lights our way. It's the second point here. Um, for our psalmist, you see, it seems clear there can only be one ultimate navigation system for life, and that's the word of God, unsurprisingly. And so he says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path, 105. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. Well, of course I will, because your word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. Now we've seen how the psalmist who has so lovingly and carefully written this psalm for our benefit absolutely delights in the word of God. That word that tells him and turns him and tethers him. God does those things uh, in that word. And how he counts on it to preserve his life. In this section, section N of the psalm, the Nun section, he wants us to show how God's, God's word is his guidance system for life. But what does it mean that the word of God is to be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? Now God's word to us is remarkable and pretty comprehensive. But one mistake we make is that uh, we assume that it gives us information at a sort of level of micromanaged detail. We think it's going to tell us every single thing. Sometimes I think we think we, we kind of like if the Word of God told us what colour socks to wear in the morning because it would mean we could switch off responsibility for ourselves and stop thinking. Yet the Word of God does not answer all of our questions. It's not really set up to be a kind of question answer. It's not a compendium of information for answering our unanswered questions. That's not how it is. It doesn't tell us, it doesn't micromanage us at that level. As our commentator Christopher Ash says, most of the decisions in daily life, the Bible does not directly make for us. When you think about that, of course that's true. Though some Christians have felt otherwise, that really the Bible will tell us uh, you know, what hand to clean our teeth with, or um, you know, even a little bit more serious than that, it will tell us at every single moment what decision to make. Rats, you might say. I was hoping for more. I was hoping you know, for much more guidance than this, for much more explicit guidance than this for my life. Now, I have heard of a person who wanted career advice and so did a random Bible flip. Have you ever used the random Bible flip advice uh, method? Which is you open up the Bible at a random place and point your finger at a passage and see what happens. Well, uh, this friend of mine said, uh, did that and wanted a career advice and came to the verse which says some, uh, he wanted some to be pastors, some to be teachers, etc., and decided to be a teacher. But that's not really the way uh, that God's going to guide us through the Bible. I don't think anyone seriously thinks that that's 
how God, how the word of God is a light unto our feet, a lamp for our path. So in what sense is it a light to my feet? Well, in two ways. And here's the first one. The word of God, they're not my feet by the way. The word of God tells us about the holy character of God and so it tells me what kind of things he wants done, the kind of things our lives are to be about. It gives you themes that your life is supposed to be about. We can see this in verse 106. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. It's the righteous and holy character of God himself that's revealed to us in his word. The laws of God are not only a random set of rules, they're not arbitrary, they reflect at a deep level who God is. We see in the rules, the laws, the commands, the precepts, the promises, what God is like and what God so what God wants us to do. And what kind of things are they? We learn that God is one and that God is supreme and so that therefore we are to worship him alone and not mix our worship with any other creature, with any other thing. We learn that God, uh, his, name, his name is holy and to be glorified and that we are to glorify it in our words, in our lives, in our actions. We learn that God rested when he made the world and made human beings for a day, made for human beings a day to rest in the world and to celebrate his works. We learn that he cares for human life and so that we are not to kill. We learn that we are to speak the truth as only God um, uh, speaks the truth. We learn, that we, are not to, we learn that we are not to steal from others, but in fact to be generous like God is unstintingly and unreservedly generous, not to nurse greed in our hearts. We learn that we are to be faithful to our marriage partners and to honour the marriages of others, just as he is faithful to his promises to his people. We can know God himself from these things. And this is our roadmap. These are to be the great themes of our lives. Of our lives. Faithfulness, worship, Glorifying God, generosity, preserving and encouraging life. Whatever socks we wear, those don't matter. We know what God loves, so love these things. We know the path that God has set out for us. He shone a great torch down it. So get moving, walk this way, set out. But if that was all, I'd still rather be in fear because though I see the path to walk on, the problem is not seeing the path. The problem is not seeing where to go in a way. The problem is my walking on it, isn't it? The problem is my own unsteady feet. How can I hope to tread this path? Can I really take an oath like the psalmist does to follow this way? Can I really commit to tread this road? Well, that's the second thing we need to learn about how the Word of God lights our feet. The Word of God tells me of God's steadfast love. It tells me of God's commitment to save his people. It tells me of God's commitment to me. Remember the Word of God is not just a command. It's a promise. When God speaks it, it is not just to declare his standards that we might know how far fall we short of them, how far we fall short of them, I should say. He shows us how determined he is to save his people. He is holy, but he is holy in just this way. The holiness of God means his purity, yes, 
but it means also his desire to make a people for himself to be holy, to holyify them so that he might be holy with them. His holiness means he's reaching out to make us holy and to bring us into his fellowship, to share life with him. And this is why we can say the word of God is a gospel. It's good news. It isn't merely the word of God to condemn us for failing. It's the word of God to preserve us and then to guide us. And of course, as people living this side of Jesus' coming into the world, we can see even better how God in his word at the same time shows us his holy character, but also shows us how we can be reconciled to him and made holy, sanctified as we are in him, washed, purified and made part of his own fellowship to live with him, to dwell with him. So how does this word light my way? The word of God not only illuminates for us the kind of God is and the kind of thing God's want, the kind of things God would have us spend our lives doing, it gives us great hope. It gives us confidence that setting out along this path we have in the God we trust, a God who is with us on the way, who guides our very feet. And so we can see from the psalmist the determination he has to follow the word. Verse 107 to 112, he's determined to follow the word. Just as he knows from the law that God is determined... Could, sorry, could we just close this door here? I just, um, if, if that's all right. Sorry, I'm just a bit distracted. Thank you. So we can see from the rest of the section that he knows that God's... Just as he knows God's determined to save him, he's also determined to follow God. His determination is in response, isn't it? God's determined to save him, so he's determined to follow God every step of the way. That's verse 106. He's made his firm commitment. As God has resolved, so he is resolved. He will follow the word of God. The word of God is going to be the cast in which his life is set, the mould into which he, like jelly, is poured. And so that will be the shape he takes. It will govern everything about him. It will mould him. And that's the last verse of the section, isn't it? Verse 112. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Heart is set. That's, that's my shape. That's the themes of my life. Even when things are not going well for him at all, he knows where he should look for help. And so he says in verse 107, I've suffered much. This sounds like uh, the previous section we looked at. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. He's learned of God's promise to him in his word to keep him safe, but also that living according to God's word is life preserving itself. The temptation in the midst of suffering is to doubt the life preserving power of the word of God. And so he pleads for God now for help, with help, for help now to live by it. It's a similar thing to what we see in verse 109 too. Have a look there. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. There is a risk it seems, in his life. I constantly take my life in my hands. It's a risky path that I'm treading here, he says. Now, what does he mean by this? I don't think he's got a risky job. I don't think that he's a parachute instructor and he's saying, look, I constantly <laughs> I take my life in my hands every day or that he's like that woman in New Zealand uh, recently, a uh, bungee jumping. I mean, that's taking your life in your own hands, isn't it? Evidently, she slipped to the bottom, right? Now, I don't think he's doing kind of extreme sports or something like that, you'll be glad to know. It seems that, connect, it seems connected to the business of following the word of God itself comes this risk. The path of God, even though it's illuminated, brings risks and threats. It's a life that courts opposition. 
Now it sounds rather good for us to say that in a country where opposition to Christianity is um, really only bored indifference. <laughs> I think I think the opposition we get is on the whole. I mean, the rise of the new atheists makes things makes things a little bit different. I'll comment about that in a minute. But on the whole, Australians oppose Christians by not caring, <laughs> by ignoring, and that's painful enough. <laughs> but uh, and I have to say, I, I think things are changing. I think I, I've noticed in the last, even just in the last few months. Um, the new atheists have um, managed, not that they're saying anything new, and they're certainly not saying anything cleverer than atheists have ever said, but what they've managed to do is tap into a, a real hostility towards Christianity and to churches, um, which is now kind of collected. And uh, there's a real hostility to the point where um, there's a group, I'm not saying that's a majority of Australians by any means, but it's a noisy minority of Australians now coordinated, as they were not before, who would like to see any trace of Christianity removed from public life. I don't know whether they'd stop at that, but certainly they they are adamant that public expressions of Christianity and Christianity that expresses itself in our public life in Australia is to be stopped. Is a, you know, they, they are absolutely adamant and vehement with it and there's a real nastiness I sense in them I don't know, um, maybe I read too many internet bulletin boards and <laughs> maybe I should stop but that seems to me I've never encountered that level of nastiness before and so perhaps opposition is coming our way perhaps we look 20 years down the track and this level of hatred against Christians and Christianity uh, will become more of a, a, a rising time, you know, be will swamp us. Um, maybe, I pray not. Um, and so, um, though, uh, you know, perhaps we can see that uh, what the psalm is talking about is coming. Uh, however, compared to other Christians in the rest of the world, what we endure from our, our neighbours is nothing. For many Christians, doing something as simple as going to church or owning the name of Jesus is indeed taking your life in your own hands. This is a reality that Christians across the globe live with every day. My father went to Myanmar, he's formerly called Burma this year. The Archbishop, the Anglican Archbishop of Burma invited him over. Uh, the Archbishop has spent two years in prison for being a Christian um, and that's, you know, I mean that's uh, compared to what some other Christians have been through, comparatively mild. But uh, th- those Christians have really suffered for owning the name of Jesus. They have uh, lost respect in their communities. Another uh, bishop from, um, uh, from Nigeria I know have, uh, has had uh, savage attacks on his own, his own household and his uh, wife has been um, under threat from, from uh, uh, Islamic uh, mobs that have come around and certainly uh, people that he knows have been, have been killed and slaughtered in fact by, uh, by mobs uh, gathering in those, um, in those areas of Nigeria. This is a reality that Christians are knowing today that to take to own the name of Jesus is a risky strategy is, uh, is, is in fact part of the business of owning the name of Jesus. It comes with a territory that there will be opposition to it and sometimes persecution. Um, my thesis, when I, when I studied for my doctorate, I wrote about martyrdom. So There's a topic close to my heart. Uh, I'm sorry if I... Stop me if I... Well, no, I will go on. Okay. Uh, one of my uh, favourite, um, one of my Christian heroes, I suppose, is this man, not the man on the left. Who's the man on the left? Hideo Min, well recognised. Um, the man on the right is Archbishop Janani Lawum from Uganda. Uh, of course, the man on the left is the former military dictator of Uganda and, and a ter- one of the 20th century's most revolting tyrants. Archbishop Janani Lawum 
um, uh, continued under, this, uh, under the reign of this man to preach the gospel. More than that, he preached the consequences of the gospel. So he told, uh, Gennady, uh, he told the um, dictator to stop doing what the dictator was doing, that his murder and tyranny was, uh, in fact, um, an outrage and uh, that his behaviour was disgusting and, um, and that he ought to stop it. So Janani Lewum followed the path of God. He knew that uh, God's word was a light unto his feet and a lamp unto his path. Got that mixed up. Lamp to his feet, light to his path. He followed the path. He took his life in his hands. And uh, one weekend he was taken, seized, and uh, all his followers knew about it was that his body was uh, discovered uh, full of bullet holes um, sometime afterwards. Um, it was claimed that he was shot trying to escape, but that uh, now is known not to be the case. Some say that he was executed by uh, Idi Amin himself. As a result of uh, Janali Lewum's testimony, um, it, it's fair to say that the, the churches in Uganda have gone from strength to strength. Not that that's easy to be a Christian there even now, but it's fair to say that his testimony and his witness against this terrible dictator for the gospel was a remarkable uh, work of God, in fact, in that country. It's a model for us in safer territory. I think Janani Lewum has given to us that we in safer territory would know how to live um, because he's a model of Christ, of course. And it's a warning to us of what may come. And it's a question for us. Under similar circumstances, would we, or even less circumstances, less terrifying circumstances, would we remember the commands and promises of God? Would we cling to those? Could we sing with the psalmist the, works of ver- the words of verse 110? The wicked have set a snare for me. Oh, Eddie Amin set a terrible snare for Janani Lewin. But I have not strayed from your precepts. In many ways, the believer walks a path riddled with traps. Once you've let people know you're a Christian in Australia, it isn't usually too bad. You're not dobbed into the secret police as you are in Myanmar. But Aussies are good at setting little traps for Christians. Um, the invitation to backstab a family member or a colleague or pointing you to a dubious website or encouraging you to lie for financial gain, that sort of thing, knowing you're a Christian and therefore setting kind of traps for you to fall under so that we can, that we can enjoy the Christian lapsing. Will you cling? Can you share the determination of this psalmist to cling to the precepts of God, to stand where God would have you stand? If you take the view of the psalmist, having a look at verse 111, that my statute, your statutes are my heritage forever, they are the joy of my heart, then it makes a good deal of sense. Now, I don't know if you've ever inherited something or whether you stand to inherit a house or some money or a yacht. If, if it's a yacht, could you please come and see me later? Um, if you, stand, you might stand to inherit something quite significant, right? But inherit, inheritances are funny things. They are your heritage in the sense it's not something you earn, is it? Something, it's something that generations before you have earned. It has the nature of a gift of your forebears to you. It, you. You receive it not earning it, but it comes to you as yours, isn't it? It's the result of hard work of someone else that's then passed on to you to fritter away, uh, which is usually what uh, old generations think you will do. But your heritage is somehow distinctively and personally yours as well, isn't it? It's deeply yours, isn't it? That's, we think of the national heritage. We think of that way. We think of the buildings, that, the, the old buildings that are around us in our community. and They're not built by us. They're not bought by us. But they're ours. We have them and they're distinctively ours. They sort of show us who we are almost. 
And here he says, your statutes, your word, that's my heritage. I, that's who I am. It, it defines who I am. My, my reason for being is found in these things. Though I have them as a gift. The statutes of God, Christians, are the heritage that you have and the guarantee of our life together with God. They show us God's commitment to us. And so, yes, they are the joy of his heart. That's verse 111, isn't it? The second half of the verse. The joy of his heart. For, for us too, who believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God is our heritage to be treasured and cared for and lived in, pardon me, and rejoiced over. It's our identity. It's who we are. And so it makes sense to live according to it, to live out of it, to live following its direction. The word of God is far, a far superior guidance system to any other because of the one who underwrites it. That is why for a Christian, any other guide in life we have must be rated lower than the word of God. Any other advice we have must be subjected to the word of God as we uh, seek to live. So how does that help you? How does it help you to make godly decisions? Well, now, in a sense, I hope you've been very disappointed by what you've heard just now. <laughs> I know it would be great to have all the answers to all our questions, and sometimes we speak as if the Bible is exactly like that. I, I said before, we speak as if it's a compendium to answers for every situation. Um, right? Well, but it, it doesn't do that. Um, actually, a more college student uh, on mission recently, he was um, trying to talk to a group of, uh, group of kids and he was really sort of overwhelmed with his enthusiasm and he said, instead of saying the Bible is the answer to all life's questions, he said, the Bible is the question to all life's answers. I think he actually spoke more truly. <laughs> in a way, the Bible cha really challenges us, doesn't it, in our conformity, in our easy answers to life's questions. Life is really, really complicated the Bible recognises that. But the Bible gives us guidance, a guidance perhaps not of the micromanaged type we want, but in setting our direction, on setting our feet on the right path. I mean, what can we say to the couple facing infertility? Or to the person who's experiencing profound loneliness? Or to the person in financial difficulties? Or to the parent of the impossible and unruly child? Or to the person who's reached the crossroads in life? We are asking, what should I do now? How, how do I best... Where do I take it from here? It isn't that the word of God doesn't have help for us in those moments. It certainly does. But it doesn't have the direct answers we sometimes want. It doesn't micromanage us. What it does do is it gives us a shape for our lives. As I said before, it casts us in a mould. As we read it, the imprint of God's very character is left upon us. It gives us the commands of God to frame our lives and it gives us the promises of God by which we can journey in hope. For Christians, the word of God is embodied for us in the very life and death of Jesus Christ. We can see in him a way a human life should be lived in the light of the word of God. And we speak, so we speak of being conformed to his likeness. Yeah, the New Testament speaks like that, becoming more like Christ, becoming more like him, which doesn't mean wearing sandals and growing a beard, does it? Not that beards are bad. <laughs> means being like him as he lived having the same attitude your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus attitude to God attitude to our fellow be uh, people um, our world so what am I to do when I'm confronted by one of those irresolvable dilemmas 
that life throws up. Well, wait a minute. I think we need to back the truck up a bit. That's the problem is we tend to go to the, the problem and say, what do I do now? What do I do in this situation? Actually, we need to prepare ourselves before we get to that moment by soaking ourselves in the Word of God, by, by getting in shape. That's a picture, that is a picture of me, by the way. Um, um, what's the thing? I'm so offended. Um, we need to get in shape. We're so flabby. We need to get ourselves in some shape by soaking ourselves in the Word of God, by living according to the hope that is in us by cultivating habits that attune us to God's voice and to his character. In the end, what you decide in those sticky situations, and sometimes it will be very complicated, life is extraordinarily complicated, but it will come out of who you are as shaped by the word of God. So the thing to do is to get in shape. A godly decision comes not because there's a prescribed answer to every question. If the question is, can I kill my neighbour? The answer is no. Right? There are, it's not that there aren't answers to those questions, but the, the important thing for us is to get injured, to have that godly character, because it becomes a godly decision comes because there was a godly person committed to the Word of God, the God who is committed first of all to them. So, how to get in shape? Well, I'd like to um, uh, ask you, invite you to make it your commitment this coming year, or perhaps even before the next. Rural Bible uh, Forum event to really get in into the Word of God. If you haven't been a Christian for long, it might be, mean something as straightforward as familiarising yourself with what actually is in the Bible. Though it's remarkable how long we can go as a Christian without kind of getting a sense of the whole of the Bible. So, I mean, I'd encourage picking up some of these uh, these, these maps and these um, uh, outlines. I, I've got to say the, the biblical timeline for me is life changing. I, I remember being introduced to a biblical timeline and, and all of a sudden it's like I could see the big picture. I could oh right. These actually these things happened in order. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, obvious to some people, not to thick thick old me. Right? To see how the Bible fits together as a whole. Amazing. Just opened up things for me in all kinds of ways. So try start to familiarise yourself uh, or recapture that familiarity with the Bible. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, then can I ask you, commit yourself to a revamp, a renewal of your spiritual life this year. Find fresh ways to immerse yourself. Start a new group. Find new books that you might read on the Bible or around the Bible that help you get into the Bible. Sign up for a course. Or as a group sign up for a course. At Moore College we offer, we offer correspondence courses that people do from all around the world. And I know there are others, I don't want to just plug those. But um, our correspondence courses, um, you can share with people who are doing it in, in some of those trouble spots that I was talking about. People, Nigerian Christians are doing those courses. Um, Nigerian pastors are doing those courses as well. And uh, people have found them enormously refreshing over the years. Um, so, and, and as I say, I don't want to just plug my own, be an ad for my own institution, but, uh, but there are others as well. Find resources, find, uh, find whatever, whatever other help you might, uh, you might do. This year I uh, decided to read through the New Testament uh, as quickly as I possibly could because I felt like I hadn't kind of done, I hadn't kind of seen that uh, for a while. So on holidays, instead of taking 
usually I take a box of books, which is foolish. <laughs> it's foolishness because I've got children. I don't read any of them. Uh, so I only took two books, and one of them was the Bible. And when I'd finished the other book, ah, I've got to read the Bible, right? So ah, why am I so reluctant? So I read the New Testament, and I was amazed again by what God showed me in that. For just this was my insight this time, was to see how fantastic Ephesians is. I started at Acts, um, right? I started at Acts because I, I don't know why I did. Anyway, I started at Acts, and I worked through and I worked through the letters. And Romans is Romans is kind of interesting, but it's kind of a it's a you know it, it is of course fascinating, but it's um it's uh, to a difficult situation. Uh, in one sense, Paul hasn't been there yet. In one Corinthians and two Corinthians, oh my goodness me. It's bad news, right? It gets worse. And then Galatians, that's a difficult situation that Paul's, a complicated uh, situation that Paul's dealing with. And then Ephesians comes in, and it's like this symphony, and it's, it's like this, this, this masterful piece, uh, a highlight in, in the midst of uh, di- letters that work out of difficulties. Here's this expression in the first three chapters of the remarkable providence and predestination of God, that the will of God has worked out, uh, and especially in Jesus Christ. And my, you know, I, I was struck by this marvelously as I, as I kind of read up to this point. Um, uh, you know, capture something like that. Have those aha moments um, as you seek fresh new ways to read the Word of God. Um, and uh, what I might do then is pray for us in that endeavour. And then again, if we do have time, we can have some interaction. If we do, do we have still? Yep. So let's uh, let's pray. And God, do help us uh, in this endeavour. Be a light. Uh, to us as we seek to live wisely and, and godly, wise and godly lives in the world. Um, thank you for the example of, um, of people like Janati the Womb, even in our times, who suffered terribly, uh, even to the point of, point of death, um, because they pursued um, the path of godliness, because they, they, they followed uh, your way and clung to your, your precepts. And we pray that we would uh, be like them, that we would... Um, we, we would even in our small ways, even in, in the minor difficulties that we struggle in, with in comparison to that, that we would be likewise faithful uh, and, and obedient in what we do. And Father, give us a, a renewed sense of uh, energy and um, enthusiasm for getting into the, uh, the Word of God and knowing you in it. Uh, give us new and fresh ways to, to do that. Um, uh, help us to find mutual support um, as we seek to read the Bible um, and to know you better in it. And we thank you for that word, Father. We thank you that you haven't left us uh, without communication, that you've spoken to us uh, in such a way as to bring us into your very fellowship. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, some um, things to say? Yes. Yes. Um, so the <laughs> the question is um, those word words. Uh, law, precept, command, statute, laws. Uh, do they have kind of? Is there somewhere where we find a separate definition to them? And uh, so that's kind of the first part of the question. And the second one is: so then, can we see that Jesus fulfilled some 
and are there others that are still? Um, the first part of the question is, no, I think the psalmist, he uses them interchangeably. Um, and he uses them in an overlapping and interchangeable way. He's not referring to the sacrificial law, the, the laws that had to do with the, uh, the, the, the tabernacle uh, and the sacrificial system in the temple. Uh, he's not saying that those are precepts and that these are commands and uh, these commands are more moral and um, these particular, uh, this particular word refers to perhaps governmental regulations. Uh, he's using them in an overlapping sense to refer to the whole of the law itself. Um, I, I think it's, it's difficult for us to... Um, uh, and what does Jesus fulfil and what doesn't he then? Um, Jesus fulfils the law um, and in the New Testament I think what we're given is a, is a new law, the law of Christ. Now, of course, it's not independent from the old law. It's not, it's not discontinuous from the old law because it's the same God. But it's kind of now, um, as we see in the New Testament, it's kind of um, uh, it, it's compressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ and so focused in on him, uh, embodied in the way he does it. So he, he um, both is our sacrifice so we can say rightly that we don't need to go and, um, and you'll be pleased to know it, go and find our, a goat and uh, offer sacrifice to it. Um, uh, not sacrifice to it, uh, <laughs> offer it as a sacrifice. Um, uh, we don't live as, uh, we don't live as, as Jews now. We, we live uh, as Christians. The law has an ongoing relevance, but it need, we need to refract the it through Jesus and his life and teaching. So you'll see that Paul, for instance, uses and refers to the law when he's teaching, but he doesn't, he doesn't just say, and now you've got to go back and do exactly what the Jews did. In fact, there's a big change there, isn't there? And that's, think of Galatians and other things. Did you want to add anything to that? Did you want to come back or...? Oh, really? I mean, uh, it's the nature of our language, and it's, it's poetic. It's poetic language that we use. We use words this way, and especially Hebrew poetry, which, um, if uh, you know, as, as you can see from the way it's laid out, um, it uses parallelism, which is a rhyme of meaning rather than of sound. So often they're trying to say the same thing in different words, and so often there is an interchangeability. Um, I don't think of this. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I'd be, I'd be careful of giving it too set a meaning in that way. There's a careful choice. In, that doesn't indicate a lack of care in the choice of words. So, yep. Yes. Well, they, they will reflect the same Hebrew word, but the English translators have chosen different words. Yep, that's right. Yes. Okay, so the question is, um, I've been talking to Christian people here, 
Um, how do we go about con convincing people on the fringes of the authenticity of the Bible? That was the word in particular, especially when the, the denominations don't agree on, uh, on lots of things. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I think two things. Uh, I think the authenticity word is a really interesting word that you use there. Um, the authenticity, and, and I think it's exactly the right word to use, because the way you convince um, the, the way you convince people about the authenticity of the Bible is to is to speak the gospel to them. Uh, you show them that these are the words of eternal life. These, it's not uh, that these. In one sense, it's, it's what these words have done for you that um, is the significant thing here. I think to also um, there, there is a, we, we need to be prepared to give um, answers, robust answers to people about um, questions they may have to do with the Word of God, to do with the history and um, to do with the, the way that texts have been um, preserved carefully and so that we have good we have good uh, copies of the original, you know, we have uh, faithful copies of the Bible. The Bible is, uh, has been faithfully transmitted to us. Um, but in one sense, those questions are, uh, you could ask them about Shakespeare too. We've got good, you know, they're, they're kind of just about the Bible as a text. What the authentic question tells me is that we need to remember to say, and also, God speaks in this and show them how, how much this is is, is working in my life, how it works out in my life. So does that make sense? That's a kind of two-pronged attack on, on answer to the question of the authenticity. Now, why the, the denominations disagreeing, though? The denominations certainly um, do disagree. And uh, I think the first thing to say is, uh, is, not to, uh, uh, is not to pretend. We do disagree on, on a lot of things. Um, but also to point to the, the consistent heart of, the, of the, um, the, the way in which actually there's a remarkable agreement about what the Bible um, teaches, about the centrality of Christ to the Bible, about the, the fact that a lot of the disagreements we have are about fringe, is fringe issues, really. Um, and uh, and, and you, you could overemphasise the disagreements that denominations have. I mean, I think denominations have probably overemphasised <laughs> the disagreements. Um, in the end, our disagreements, though they are heartfelt to us, are actually often at the, the, the fringes of what the Bible is, is, is teaching rather than at the core. Uh, so that would be one, one way to, I think, challenge that assumption that the denominations are, are in, in massive disagreement. Um, what else? I think I would also say that the Bible, it's not the Bible's fault in a way. The, the problem is not the Bible, the problem is human sinfulness. And uh, often the, uh, the divisions that we, we have had and experienced in church history are not merely matters of interpretation but are matters of human pride, politicking and uh, human sinfulness as well. So did you want to add to that? Lack of logic. Um, what do you mean? What do you mean in the Bible? Yeah, um, you have to you have to um, talk about that as each instance comes. The, the thing is, the Bible we can't hide from this, but the Bible is a miraculous a book with miraculous things in it. <laughs> it's a spirit. It's a supernatural book. It's inspired by God. B.B. Um, Warfield said, a great uh, um, reformed thinker from the 19th century. And, um, and we, we shouldn't hide that in a sense. It is saying something remarkable. But on the other hand, it, is, it, is, it does make sense of, of, uh, of and orders our world remarkably well. And so that it has a supernatural aspect to it, 
I don't think, I don't think is illogical. But um, without getting into specifics, it's hard to kind of answer it more depth. Perhaps one more? Yes? Yeah, thanks. That's a terrific. That's a brilliant question. That is, um, the question is, people are struggling to stay faithful to the Word of God. Is that what you're, you're suggesting? Yeah, uh, under the, under pressure from communities, friends, family, etc. I don't know Devonport, so I can't specifically say. But I will say that um, that's why church communities are really important and getting bonded with other Christians and the support, mutual help of other Christians is really uh, important because uh, God hasn't left us alone in this task. Um, not only has he given us his spirit, but he's, he's given us each other to not, uh, for mutual, you know, so we can struggle on together. Um, and so I, I can't go beyond the local church is actually the first port of call. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't. I can't really. It's a boring answer, <laughs> in a way. But I really think that's um, that's uh, um, a remarkable. Pl- I mean, that's what Christian fellowship is designed to do. I have to say, the internet gives us from uh, also is a is a tool for good as well as evil. Uh, uh, in that, it can connect Christians um, across across vast distances, and um, and so uh, and can lead to. Um, great support between people uh, which is virtual um, but really helpful so uh, don't be afraid to dig around on, on those sorts of things either um, uh, I'm trying to think where where in particular one might go on, on those sorts of things but certainly for um, uh, uh, I mean in, in Sydney we run a, we run a, a website um, <coughs> Of course, whose name I can't now remember, uh, which is kind of meant to be um, uh, a kind of answering questions website as well. So they, they um, someone will post in a question, and um, uh, there are people who are there to answer them on on the site, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, but don't be slow in asking for help because I think that's. I mean, a Christian is already a person who's recognised they're helpless, so why not go the whole way and ask? <laughs> ask each other and help each other and rely on each other. I got the sign from Chris. Thank you very much for having me and, um, and God bless.